Let's begin our first class in apologetics, and I'm going to open in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for all this world that you have created. It is absolutely stunning and amazing. And Father, there is your, your fingerprints are everywhere. The breadcrumbs that lead to you in this world are everywhere for us to discover. And I ask you, Lord, that as a class, over the next two semesters, we are going to do an excellent job discovering those breadcrumbs and being able to defend the faith to those who don't know you, to those who are skeptical, to those who don't trust in Jesus yet. We want to be good stewards of the truth. Help us, Spirit of God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I have a puzzle here in front of me, and I want to just ask you, it is how many pieces here? Oh, a thousand? Thousand. A thousand pieces. How many of you have ever put a puzzle together that had a thousand pieces? How many of you have ever had to put a puzzle piece puzzle together that had 500 pieces? 100. 10. Okay, great, great. So Rusty can probably do one that's 10, um, but not 100. If I were to take this and turn it upside down, you can't use that, and for you then to put it together, how long do you think it would take? An hour. Listen to this, guys. Rest of the day. I'm going to guess even longer than that. Okay. I would, let's say around 20 hours. 20 hours. A thousand pieces. That's a lot. Now, that is without the box top. If I were to give you the box top, if it took you 20 hours without the box top, with the box top, how many hours do you think it will take you? Three or four. 45, half an hour. Oh, yeah. You're either lying or you're a phenomenal puzzle piecer togetherer or something. Okay. You are puzzling. All right. So with a box top, yeah, good. It's right side up. With a box top, it would take half the time or maybe even a tenth of the time. That is how beneficial a box top is. What does a box top ha- help you to do in putting the puzzle together? Okay, it gives you the big picture. Okay, it guides you. How does it guide you? Because you know what to, how it looks like. It's the big picture, like you said, and then you just go off of the big picture. And you can't just put the barn in the bottom left corner. Okay. Now, let's say I come across a piece without the box top, and that piece is all red. Wow. That doesn't help me at all. But with the box top, what does that tell you? It's part of the little barn or shed. Okay, there's three of those. And then there is a little tree in the back with red, but it, it'll probably show leaves on it. And so with that, you've got a really good idea where it's probably going to be. If, um, if you had blue striping on yours, you know exactly where it's going to be because there's one, yeah, well, maybe two. One's lighter, the other's darker, but... There's, there's a roof, and you know exactly where that piece is going to go. Here is the benefit of a box top. It's going to save you a whole lot of time. As a matter of fact, without the box top, it is possible you'll never be able to put that puzzle together. Because what you've got to do, look at all the leaves. Look at all the green. Look at all the blue sky. The only thing you have to go on at that point is, are the leaves on the ground? Are the leaves on the trees? They could be on the bottom or it could be at the top. There's a lot of places. But if you don't even have the box top, what if the whole thing are just leaves? 
a thousand pieces. The only thing that you're going to go on is the shape of the puzzle and does it fit the next. And you have to, it's trial and error. Does it fit this? Does it fit this? Does it fit this? Here's where I'm going with this. A lot, everybody in this world has a worldview. I'm not going to talk about worldviews a whole lot today, but that is what's going to drive what we're doing. And what everybody does, if I can just put this back together properly, uh, there we go. Everybody has a box top. We all have the same puzzle pieces, though. Imagine that. If everybody had all the same puzzle pieces, but a different box top. One of those box tops, box tops is probably right, but all the others are wrong. If that, if everybody who has different box tops, what do you do if you have a different box top and you were to come across and there's no red in your box top, but you have red pieces? What do you do with that red piece? You discard it. I don't know where this fits in my worldview. And so I'm going to set it over here because it's irrelevant. I can't answer it. A good worldview knows how to use all the puzzle pieces. They may not fit. So the best worldview, and there's only one, is they all fit together. Now, the truth is, even though my box top is my Bible, I may not be able to put all the puzzle pieces together exactly right. But I tell you what, I've got all the puzzle pieces. I've got the right box top. It might be that this piece is turned a little bit wrong here and it should be over here, but for the most part, I've got it. All right? Answers to certain questions in this world, like the problem of evil and why does a good God even allow it, we may be able to answer to a degree, so we got most of the puzzle pieces right, but some of them, not exactly sure, and we might misplace them. But for the most part, we've got the picture. This is going to be important because everybody that you talk to has a box top. We all have the same puzzle pieces. That's life. How does this life, how do the questions of life properly fit together? The puzzle pieces in this box top are the truths, okay? They are the truths that we are in the process of piecing together. I have a question for you. You're going to find the answer in, in your reading for the next week. And the question is based on this. I'll tell you the question in a moment. Thomas Kuhn, a well-known uh, science philosopher, wrote a book many years ago called Scientific Revolutions. It created a revolution in and of itself. It led science to believe this, that we do not know truth. We can only approximate truth. So throughout his book, that's his premise, and he tries to prove it. So he says that there is no such thing as truth. Um, so let's say that the... Uh, the, the earth is the center of the universe. That is our conclusion. Through certain evidences that we stumble upon, discoveries, we realize, whoa, earth is not the center of the universe. Well, what is the center of the universe? And then some come along and say, well, the sun is the center of the universe. Is that correct? It's not. 
I thought it was, no? See, it's not. It's the center of our solar system, but it's not the center of the universe. Then we learn more evidence and we say, aha, the sun is only the center of our solar system. The very center of the sun is the very center of the solar system. And we would be almost there. It's just not exactly true. And so the center of the solar system is just a little off center because of the weights of the the mass of the, the solar system. And so, but for the most part, it's close enough. The sun is the center of our solar system. So Thomas Kuhn's proposal is that we can only approximate truth. The more we discover, the more we learn, the more we're going to tweak our truth. Here's the problem that I have with that. He confuses truth with what we know. Okay, there is a truth, and we're going to talk about this next week, so I'm not going to give you the answer. But there is a truth, and I want you then to answer my question, and it is this. Um, okay, it is a statement with, followed by a true or false question. Here we go. Um, Thomas Kuhn's book, Scientific Revolution, states that we cannot know truth, we can only approximate truth. Is this true, or is this false, and why? That is my question to you. So when you read the material, I want you to come with a written answer. So somewhere in your notes, I want you to write that answer. Can we know truth or just an approximation of the truth? Can we know truth, true or, true or false? We can, okay, he says we cannot know truth, true or false, and why. All right, very good. So as we go through this class, I believe we are going to stumble across truth. Well, we're not going to stumble. We're going to discover it. And I think it has the potential to be really exciting. We are going to need to know what to do with that truth. It's going to benefit us, but I think our goal should be that it's going to benefit others. So I want to start the class off today with how we can do that. Um... How many of you watched Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guys, debate? Okay. <laughs> if you weren't careful, by the way, you would think that Ken Ham did not do a very good job because we wanted him to answer the question, can creation be supported by the evidence or can it not? But that wasn't the debate question. So Bill Nice, the science guy, treated it as if it was, and really it was, can the worldview that supports creation, is that the best one or is it not? Now, I'm, I'm wording it in my own uh, words. So Bill Nye, the science guy, started presenting all of this evidence, and, and Ken Ham, you might remember, kept focusing on worldview, 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 and he finally said, by the way, Bill, the, the debate today is about worldview and not about all the evidence, just so you know. So here's some evidence for you, but just so that the audience realizes the debate today is about worldview, not all the evidence. So we want to obtain a worldview, a right one. We're going to get that from the Bible, but we want to be able to present that worldview and present the evidence in a way that is coherent, um, 
and in a way that people can receive. I felt that Ken Ham's attitude during the whole debate was stellar. I questioned Bill Nice. He was condescending. Whenever you approach things that way, condescendingly, you got the answers and you need to educate your opponent. Number one, you're going to turn it into an argument and you're going to put the other person on the defensive. So how do we do this? Number one, um, Jude 3, and I want you to take notes. Jude 3 says, I urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, I want us to contend for this faith. I do believe that Jude had more in his statement was more in line with us knowing the gospel so that we can defend the gospel. But we live in a scientific age in which the gospel, and can I even trust this book, comes under scrutiny. And you're going to discover as we go through cold case Christianity, that's exactly what the author tries to do. Can I trust these stories about Jesus? So it is important, Jude 3 tells us, to contend for the faith. We live in a scientific rev, uh, age, and we're going to need to be educated in the sciences, at least to some degree. And again, that's going to help us in realizing that our faith is firmly established. And then when we discover all of these truths, well, lo and behold, all of these truths that we're discovering, it fits my box top perfectly. Whereas others, they're saying, eh, good and evil, don't know how that really fits. Atheists have many problems, one of which is, how is it that a universe that accidentally happened and has absolutely no purpose whatsoever in it at all has managed to evolve at its apex into a being, humans, that is consumed by this concept of purpose. Again, how is a universe that has absolutely no purpose in it whatsoever has formed a being that is consumed by purpose? So ironic. Um, they can't answer that question. Uh, I can because I've got the right box top. I don't think that's proud to say, but I, I, we do have the truth in the Bible. Um, we're going to talk about presuppositions, I believe, next week, so I'm not going to get into that, but the Bible is my presupposition. Everybody has a, a box top. Everybody has presuppositions. Again, now let's, let's look at a passage in Ephesians 4, and you don't, you can turn there with me. Um, and in Ephesians 4, it says this. Give me two seconds here. Ephesians 4. Paul says in verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on, insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. The futility of their thinking. That means their thinking is useless. That's a pretty bold statement. There were some pretty smart dudes in Paul's day. The, I mean, Paul himself was pretty smart. But... Their thinking was futile. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Verse 19 gives us the conclusion or the end result of all this. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. 
there are no moral restraints. In atheism, there are no moral restraints. None. And we're going to need to talk about that at some point. And, and why do I, why would I even say that? And I'm not saying that atheists don't have morals, but they have zero foundation for their morals. We're going to need to look at that because if you go to a college or university in which you have an atheist professor, he is going to try and defend his morality and he will have no leg to stand on. We want to be able to discuss that. This tells me that the whole reason why people don't have life in them is because they don't have the truth. And that the reason why they don't have the truth is because of the hardness of their hearts. It's not because of the hardness of their minds. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because, you know, God passed out brains. They thought he said trains and they missed theirs, as it said, as they say. It is because of the hardness of their hearts, not because of the hardness of their minds. You're going to find, in fact, some of the smartest people relying so much on their brains and not upon faith or weighing of the evidence fairly. It's all about science and what science can discover for us. And they will come to such wrong conclusions because their heart has been hardened. Okay? So when you are talking with someone, they're an atheist or a skeptic or an agnostic. By the way, what's the difference between an agnostic and an atheist? Daniel? Doesn't an agnostic believe that there's a God, but they can't put a finger on what God that is? Um, not really, because that means that they believe that there's a God, and an agnostic generally does not. Saxon? They don't believe in a God themselves, but they know that there might be one. Okay. Because? Because there's like evidence out there that there might be one, but they're not sure what his evidence might be. Okay. So they recognize that there is some evidence that would lean in that direction, but it's not sufficient for them to say one way or the other. So because they can't prove it with 100% certainty, that is, they cannot prove their atheism with 100% certainty, they choose to be agnostic. But agnosticism, as we're going to find out in the next, I think it's the next chapter, means a, which is not, gnosis, which means knowledge. In other words, you cannot know. And it's not just agnosticism about God, but they generally say you cannot know anything for sure. Not everybody, not all agnostics say that, but that's generally what the, the term means. Okay, you're going to read about that either in chapter 1 or 2, I'm, I'm forgetting. Let's look at another passage, and that would be 1 Peter 3. Now, when I was preaching through 1 Peter, we touched on this. I chose not to go into it in detail, but it says in verse 15, 1 Peter 3, 15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, in other words, reverence Jesus as King, God, Lord, Master of your life. That's what that is saying. Set him apart. Okay, Jesus, you're the master, not me. Always be prepared to give an answer. That word answer, and I'm reading from the NIV, is in some translations rendered defense, give a defense. It's the Greek word apologia. Apologia. That, yes. 
A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A. And logia, a pal, listen, a, a, yeah, I was thinking there was a long O in there, that's apologia. Yes. Except they pronounce it apologia because they're, they speak English. Which is fine. Apologia. Apologia means a defense. A ready answer. Here's the reason why. So it's the reasons behind it. And if not for someone else's benefit, at least for your own, and therefore the purpose of the class, I want you to know the reasons why you believe. And, and I want it to be more than because my mama tells me so. All right. I want it to be because you personally have looked into this and you took this class and you thought it through. Okay. When you get into college, you're going to need to stand on your own two feet because classes, either it's a philosophy class, a science class, med, psych, in psychology, I got this. And that is many of them don't believe in God and they're free to bring it into their class. In my philosophy class, they said, you cannot use the Bible, but you tell me what you think about ethics. And so they talked about this concept of utilitarianism that I'm not going to touch on. But it was, you know what? When you don't believe in God, that's where you go. Ethics is this huge question mark. There is absolutely no foundation for why I believe something's right or wrong, but they will defend it tooth and nail. We will look into that, by the way. So... We want to make sure that we are giving a defense. Well, it goes on and it says, prepare to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That word, the reason, is the Greek word logos, which actually means an account. Give an accounting of. Here's what I want us to focus on right now. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. When you walk away talking with someone about your faith, can you do so without feeling guilty? Or do you feel that you crossed the line? Um, 2 Timothy, let's dig into that. Just how... How do we talk to people? And I only want to spend a few minutes on this before we get into the introduction of um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Second Timothy chapter 2. We need to know how to talk to people. There are certain things I'm going to have you write down in a moment based on Second Timothy chapter 2. We need to weigh our heart. Do we have the right heart? Or do we not have the right heart? Am I feeling guilty like I did something wrong when I leave? Or do I have a clear conscience? But gentleness and meekness, humility. That's what Peter tells us. Tim, Paul tells Timothy in verse 25, 2 Peter 2.25, he says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. That is an embracing, a relational type of understanding of the truth. Um, and so that means 
if you do or say something, the way you word things, you are putting the person on the defensive. Maybe you're mocking them. Maybe you're making fun of a word that they used because they used it incorrectly. Don't focus on that stuff. It's going to be a distraction. It's going to cause the person to be on the defensive and never refer to them like I did just a few minutes ago as your opponent. Don't do that. Because number one, write these things down. What's, what should our attitude be? Number one, turn it into a discussion. They are not your opponent. Isaiah 1, uh, 118. God tells Israel, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Let that be your invitation. Come, let's reason together. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. Turn it into a discussion and not a monologue. Turn it into a friendly conversation between two people or maybe even a small group in which people aren't trying to prove that they're right but that you, we're discussing this. Now, you do believe that you're right. I hope you believe that you're right. But you don't want to come across arrogant, like I'm right, you're wrong. Even though that's true, that's going to make the person feel stupid. It's going to make them want to go on the defensive. It's going to make them want to attack you. And their hearts have been hardened. They're not stupid. They may have been miseducated, but they're not stupid. So don't treat them that way. Don't talk to them that way. Use kind words. Um, number two, uh, do not argue. It actually says in verse 24 that I didn't read to you that the servant of God does not argue. doesn't get into silly arguments and questions and stuff that are not relevant. Um, and because what generally drives arguments, guys, is the need to feel like I'm right. And I want you, if you are discussing something like apologetics and evidences that we're going to get into, make it your goal to win a friend rather than win an argument. When you win a friend, and I believe this was Jesus' goal every time, except when he talked to the Pharisees. When he talked to the Pharisees, he was driven by this principle. If they were receptive, I will talk with you. But if you're not, Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't cast your pearls before swine or your what before dogs. Yeah. Um, sorry. Shoes. I'm sorry? Shoes. Shoes. Don't throw your shoes to the dogs. Great. <laughs> sorry, the, the word is not coming to me, but... Uh, when I get home, when I'm driving home, it'll hit me. Duh, that's what it, yeah, of course. So the, the pearls are the truths, but the, it's generally truths that bring conviction. And the Pharisees could not stand that. Um, they mocked John the Baptist and Jesus because they called people to humility and repentance and they thought they were better than that. And they thought they were righteous when they were not. Okay. Number, so number three, be humble. Make it a discussion. Number two, don't argue. Number three, be humble. Number four, do not put them in their place. Don't say things that are zingers, as they call them. As 
Oh, that was a good comeback. If you ever find yourself feeling, oh, that was a good comeback, you've probably crossed the line. We don't need those comebacks, all right? Maybe a good answer. That's not what I'm getting at. A comeback is where, man, you, you show them just how stupid their answer was. Don't do that, all right? Don't, don't have that mindset. Their answer might be flawed. It might be illogical. But if it is, gently show them. That's the problem that I have with the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, is that at times they don't do this. And they do put their opponent, and they view the person as their opponent at times, and they do say, they do give zingers. They're not gracious at times, at times. They're not gracious when they call them out and say that's illogical. All right. I want you to be, I want you to be respectful. And then always make Jesus your focus and your goal. Okay. Do that. Make Jesus your focus. This is about Jesus. This is, this is about winning people to Jesus and the gospel. It is not about you having the best argument. Unless, of course, you're in a debate and that happens to be the rule. Even so, if you've ever watched a debate, good debaters, the one representing Christ, will almost always extend a gospel presentation to the audience, even though that's outside of his bounds and the topic. He will try to take some time at the very end to share Jesus with them. Okay? That is our goal. It all comes back to Jesus. When you stand before God, he's not going to pat you on the back and say, whew, what an argument you gave on my behalf against that idiot down there. Remember that? He said... Did you point them to Jesus? Did you point them to me? Oh, yeah, man. Sorry, God, I forgot about that one. We never want to be in that place. Okay. Focus on Jesus. Well, let's, let's look at this book. We've got only a few more minutes, 20 minutes or less to, to do that. This is a shorter chapter, and that's why I'm not spending the entire time on it, but I wanted to share with you the attitude that I want, and I believe Jesus wants all of us to have with this evidence because knowledge puffs up but love builds up if you were to walk away knowing these two books back and forth that is the potential to produce pride okay knowledge puffs up but you see if your attitude in learning this is to be able to show them jesus and it's love and not to win an argument love will build them up okay so let's make sure that we point them to jesus okay awesome all right, well, let's, let's look at, at the book. Give me a moment while I get my bearings here. Um, I did mention in the beginning of class that our box top is the Bible, even when issues of creation and evolution and science are put on the table. We look at these things, the age of the earth, with a, through a grid. In other words, I'm going to look at the geologic column, and I know that there was a flood. Does this geologic column fall into the, that category? And is the flood the best evidence for the geologic column? I'm going to suggest to you by far and away it is. But when you can't believe in a flood... Because that's, it's, it, it's presented in what people would say mythological proportions. A flood 
that covered the whole world with water? Where did all the water go? How did they fit all the animals into the ark? Blah, 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 blah. But dinosaurs lived 65 million years ago. Yes, but based on what? Based on the geologic column, which is based on what? Because I believe it's based on the flood. You believe it's just based on hundreds of millions of years. See, we're different. We have a different box top. But your box top, the person that you're talking with, their box top is going to help them understand those five questions that he saw here in the book, that we read in the book. Where do we come from? Let me just point to that on what page it is. If you find it before me, just shout out the page. I'll get there in two seconds. Here we go. Page 20. Awesome. Uh, page 20. Those five questions. Origin. Where do we come from? Identity. Who are we? Meaning. Why are we here? Morality. How should we live? Destiny. Where are we going? Can I say that atheistic evolution or materialism cannot answer those questions? There is no science that can answer those questions. Who are we? Their answer is you're a bunch of chemicals put together. Materialistically, there's truth in that, but only to a degree. Can you please help me understand the chemical workings of mind? No scientist is going to be able to tell you that. They don't have that figured out. They can tell you about the brain, but the mind is how the thoughts. And what about a dream? What is that? What is a dream? When you close your eyes and you see something in your mind, what is that? Is it just chemical? Or is there some other aspect about man? We, we don't have the answer to that. Okay? And I can't propose to give you an answer to it, but I'm going to tell you what, it's deeper than what science can tell us because it's deeper than materialism. All right? And, and, and it probably has something to do with the soul. Anyway, philosophy is still debating the mind-brain question anyway. But material, atheistic materialism cannot answer these questions sufficiently. Because they got the wrong box top. Okay? Um, the question I want us to look at is, why religion, they say, doesn't convey truth but opinion, like different flavors of ice cream? Our box top is based on the Bible. Most of the people that you talk to out there, it is not. Even though 80% of people in America say that they're Christians, probably 10% or I'm kind of choosing numbers, a very low percentage are because most people are Christian only in name. They maybe have gone to church, maybe they go regularly, but do they really understand the gospel? In varying degrees, but for the most part, no, they don't. They've heard some stories, maybe some sermons about from the Bible, but the Bible to them is not necessarily true. And here's what they'll do. They'll take religion. Religion is like a flavor of ice cream. Tora, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Strawberry. Okay. Samuel, what's your favorite? Cookies and cream. Cookies and cream. Halal, how about you? Favorite ice cream? Because there, there's a lot of ice cream I like, but maybe I guess I'll just pick chocolate. Chocolate. Okay. How many of your favorite ice cream is chocolate? Wow. See, for me, it's like it's like uh, what do they call that? Uh, decadent chocolate. 
you know, where they, where it's, it's super chocolate with chocolate fudge and brownie and all. It's like, yeah, pack it in there. Now, how would you do, Tora, defending your position that strawberry ice cream is the best ice cream out there? Why not? Okay, so strawberry ice cream is the best ice cream ever is not a truth statement then, correct? All right, okay. You're going to find out what I'm actually meaning by that in the next chapter. What is a truth statement? There's a difference between a truth statement and an opinion. The problem, though, in our day today is truth statements have become opinions. And so people are saying, well, there's no such thing as truth. What? And if you read the book, they'll say things like, well, that's really silly. I want to be careful. I don't want to say that. It kind of is, though. But the truth is, people out there, they have been duped by their professors. That There's no such thing as truth because truth is like a flavor of ice cream. Or we can only approximate truth. Religion, religion is an opinion. That is their statement. So we cannot allow religion to enter into science because science has to do with facts and truth, whatever that is. But religion has to do with faith and flavors and opinions. And here's what I think. And here's my truth. What truth do you believe in? And things like this. All right? So... The reason why they say that is, number one, if we're going to say that my religion is the right box stop, that there's one true religion, that there's one truth out there and not many truths, we're going to say things like, we're going to say things like, there's only one true religion, which means mine is right and yours is wrong. And we live in a day in which that is not tolerant. If you go to Stetson University, their mantra is, we celebrate all religions. Because all religions are right, or at least contain elements of truth. So who are you to say what's religiously true and what's not? My box top, that's what does. But they can't accept that, because that makes you sound exclusive. You're right, and everyone who disagrees with you is wrong. So what I want us to realize is religion is not about opinion. Religion is not equivalent to what's my favorite ice cream, okay? Because, Hillel, you might think that you've got some really good arguments for why chocolate is the best ice cream, but I might think, you know what? No, 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 decadent chocolate. That trumps just plain. plain. Chocolate is just plain. Come on. And, and I could give my arguments, and we could say, okay, class, who won the argument? And you would think, that's really silly. Like Torah said, it's an opinion. And then there's Torah. She's going to probably abstain and say, I'm not voting because I hate chocolate. Okay? What, what do you mean you hate chocolate? That's, that's, that's like not right. Okay? But God created chocolate. See, God created strawberry too. So, you know, the <laughs> argument goes both ways. And, well, I, ugh. But see, that is not what re- the way religion is. Faith is based on truth statements. Faith is based on facts. If your faith 
is not based on any facts, then your faith has no foundation. It has no foundation. Now, you may not, you may be a Christian and you may not know the facts, but trust me, regardless, your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is rooted in truth and evidence and an experience that actually happened in human history. And it left behind a lot of evidence for it. We're going to look at when we go through cold case Christianity. So religion is not a bunch of opinions. It is not an argument of whether strawberry or chocolate ice cream is the best. Okay? It is, it delves into truth. Okay? But here's the thing, and here's the point of why he called this, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Even scientists operate on faith. They don't just operate on the evidence. They operate on faith. And we're going to see that as we go through the book. We're regularly going to ask the question, does Christianity's claims, truth claims, are they backed with more evidence? Or is the atheists or skeptics or someone that opposes that truth claim, do they have more evidence? Faith comes in. Faith is needed when the evidence is lacking. If I can give you 10 reasons why something is true, and I believe it's true, and someone else can give only one reason why they think their side is true, who is going to need to rely on more faith? The one with less evidence. See, that's because there is a greater gap between the evidence and their truth claim. Okay? Christianity has a tremendous amount of facts. Whether you know it or not, it has a tremendous amount of evidence and facts. Atheism, they don't. Okay? And we're going to need to understand why over the next two weeks. But they, they operate under more faith than the Christian does. And that's why he says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And he will conclude every chapter with that statement. The reason why I'm not an atheist, or the reason why I, I can't disagree with this truth claim that, like, for example, Jesus rose from the dead, is because there's just too much evidence for it, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Okay? Does everybody understand that, and does anybody have any questions about what I'm saying right now? Religion and faith and science and evidence and truth, they all come under one heading, okay? They all come under one heading. Both scientist and religious person need faith because we are all after truth, all right? Anybody questions? Okay. Um, Do you remember the illustration where there are six blind men and they are feeling different parts of the elephant? And the one who feels, wow, I'm trying to remember now what their conclusions were. But they're, whatever they're feeling, they come to a conclusion. The one feeling the side of the elephant, elephant thinks that he's touching a wall, I believe. The one touching the tail feels like he, he thinks he has hold of a rope. 
a wall, a rope? Well, which one is it? And their conclusion is all religions are feeling a different part of the elephant and they're just trying to articulate in their religion what they're holding and feeling. But the truth is the picture is much bigger than that. Now, their argument is that's not how religion works. That That's just not how it works. Okay, so we all get to see and feel different parts of the elephant. All right, and we are not blind. We are using all of our senses. And so when that illustration is used, you just need to, to realize that it's not an illustration that really helps us understand what's going on here. It's just not. All right, I, I'm, I realize I am needing to hurry through this. So okay, I'm going to skip that. All right. Okay, if you were to turn to page 26. On page 26, he is talking about this concept of faith. And at the very top, do you see where he says, since Barry, like Steve, is dealing in the realm of probability, because he's dealing with evidences, and where does this evidence lead me? Rather than absolute certainty, he has to have a certain amount of faith to believe that God does not exist, because not all the evidence is in. For all the evidence to be in, even for me, I'd have to be God. I'd have to know everything. And since I don't know everything, I have only a lot of evidence, but I have only some of it, okay? I don't have everything. I don't know everything, but same with the atheist. So he operates under probability. I operate under probability. Well, how do you know which one is right? You look at how much evidence they have, okay? Let the evidence lead us. So, you know, I'm talking about breadcrumbs earlier in my prayer. I talked about breadcrumbs. Uh, Tim Keller uses that illustration in Reasons for God. And it's a good illustration. Remember Hansel and Gretel when they are finding their way to the gingerbread house, right? Gingerbread house in the, in the forest and they follow the breadcrumbs. And I like the way, um, I believe that it's Frank Turek words this on page 31. I want you to go to, all of you go to page 31, and if it's not underlined in your book, I want you to do that right now, okay? So everybody, do you have the book? I share. Okay, all right. So as long as whoever you're sharing with, they're underlining this, great. Go a little bit more than halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way down. In the middle of that huge paragraph, do you see the italicized sentence there? It begins with non-italicized words in other words. Do you see that? And then we have italics. Does everybody see that? Sorry, where? It's in the, it's in the middle of that huge paragraph. Just, here we go. Right, right here. In other words. I want you to underline that. I'm going to read it to you. In other words, God has provided enough evidence in this life, enough breadcrumbs, if you will, to convince anyone willing to believe. Yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel 
the unwilling. I'm going to read that one more time. In other words, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe, yet he has also left some ambiguity, uncertainty, so as not to compel the unwilling. In all honesty, that's why Jesus taught in parables, if you didn't realize that. Because those who were hungry for the truth would listen to his parable and would try really hard to figure it out. But if you really weren't interested in what Jesus had to say, what a silly story. It made no sense. And that's why Jesus put things, stories, uh, truths in parables. To conceal it from those who weren't hungry for truth, but to reveal it to those who were. And that's the way God has created this world. There are a lot of breadcrumbs that lead to truth, that lead to God, that lead to the fact that the truth that the Bible's trustworthy, the Gospels are trustworthy, historical records and such. There's enough breadcrumbs to lead us to that. But there's not so much so as to force me, compel me. I've got to believe this. You'd have to be a stupid person not to. Okay? I don't know about you, I've talked with some people and they say, if there really was a God, why doesn't he just appear to me right now? Because if he did, I'd believe. Yep, and you wouldn't need faith either. You see, your journey in this life is all about faith. Evidence will take you to a point, but the rest is faith. You've got to take that step of faith. There's no other way around it. Everyone, every Christian or atheist, has to take that step of faith. God made it that way. When we encounter that tough question, why does a good God and loving God and powerful God allow evil in this world? We can understand it to a degree, but the rest we just say, you know what? I just trust you, God. And we take that step. Okay? And it may not make complete sense in our mind. I'm going to tell you this right now. It makes total sense in God's mind. And, and, and maybe we're, we're going to be able to answer that question later in our, our class time down the road here, a couple of weeks or what have you. But that's a tough question. But there's an answer to it. But it's going to take a step of faith. Everything will, Christian or non-Christian. And that's what life is about. just depends on what they're going to end up believing. The the question, is there a God or not? So the atheists, their religion, and, and if we were to look at the definition of religion, atheism would fall into that category. It's a set of beliefs that you firmly adhere to. Atheists have a set of beliefs, not just facts, but beliefs, because everyone operates under faith. Everybody. Your box top is not enough. You have to have faith. So even atheists have a faith. Their religion says there is no God. That may be true or it may not be true, but they, they seriously lack evidence. And on my side of Christianity, there is a tremendous amount of evidence. But there's a reason why they don't believe it. And we're going to look at that over the next two weeks, and it's somewhat philosophical. It has to do with, um, it has to do with atheistic materialism. Um, you're going to learn about Hume and Kant and what they believed about miracles and why they did not believe in them and why and, and such. And these are hard questions that they presented to the church. And of course, the church rejected it, but they felt that they walked away feeling as if they were right. 
but everyone takes a step of faith. You can be right or you can be wrong, okay? I'm going to suggest that in Christianity, the evidence falls way, way in favor of it. You'll see that. As a matter of fact, there is more evidence in Christianity than any other religion 10 to 100 times over. And I'm not exaggerating. It is that overwhelming. But again, the issue is the heart. And the heart is desperately wicked beyond cure. Who can understand it? Our hearts are evil. We want, bottom line is we want to believe what we want to believe. And there are issues of the will that he talks about in this chapter, issues that are emotional. For the most part, a person is an atheist rather than an agnostic because of their emotions, not because of the evidence. And then I'm just going to conclude with this because I, I am over a few minutes. And it's, it's a good quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, and I'm just going to read this. Um, that's why for, for love, by definition, must be freely given. It cannot be coerced. And so that's why God left breadcrumbs because he did not want to bind our free will. He wanted us to make the choice to follow those breadcrumbs or not, to then take that step of choice and love God or not love God. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote, and here's a good quote, the irresistible, that means it, you can't resist it. It's overwhelming. You, you're compelled. And the indisputable, intellectually, I can't say no. It's indisputable. The irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of God's scheme forbids him to use. Okay? Think about that. Merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, that is like for God to suddenly appear to me, would be for him useless he cannot ravish, he can only woo. Do you understand what he's saying there? God is not going to force us. He created this world so well so that there's sufficient evidence, but not so overwhelming evidence for us to say, yes, there's enough evidence. I want to follow you, God, and I want to love you, but I'm not forced, I'm not compelled because God didn't appear to me and say, hey, hello, I've been here all the time. What idiot would be able to deny that, you know? Well, you know, there may be some who would say, oh, well, that was just a, um, how did they say in uh, Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol? It's, it's a bit of bad beef or potato. <laughs> you know, this is just a hallucination. And that's what they would probably say. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I want this. To, to engage us intellectually, but you will always have to take that step of faith. Always. Okay? All right. Uh, again, when you read through this book, I want you to put a question mark next to stuff that you don't understand. And let's try, and I'm going to try and leave room for questions and just make sure you raise your hand with those. Let me close in prayer. Father, I just ask right now, God, bless this time. Help us to be defenders of the faith, faith but to, to really have the attitude and the mindset and heart of Christ. Please, Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sorry? Thank you.